and you've joined us in the middle of, or not at the middle, at the start of our, our summer series, uh, which is called the Book of the Twelve. Um, and what happens in our summer series is the campus pastors, so pastors leading at any one of the Grace Church campuses, go around and visit each campus. And so over the next few weeks, you're going to get to see folks from different campuses. And I'm also going to travel. I think I get to travel to Athens, and I get to travel to Snellville. Um, so I'm not going to be here every week, and other people are going to be here in my place. Um, and, and one of the things that we, I want to say about the Grace family is that we're a, share, a family that shares um, some common values, um, some common DNA uh, that I've often heard expressed as rooted and renegade. Who's heard the term rooted and renegade? Okay, now the rooted aspect of that really is, is making clear that we're a family of churches that are rooted, amongst other things, in Scripture. And that means that we love the Bible. We like to teach from the Bible. We want to be led by the Scripture in what we teach and what we say. We don't want our ideas, our thoughts, our imagination to lead us and who we are. Um, and what that means in when, when you commit to Scripture, it means is that you have to teach the whole Bible. And that means you have to teach the, the, the popular things, and so you teach the things that people are familiar with. Those of you who've been here over the last year know that we went through the entire Sermon on the Mount. Did we miss anything out? Did it take a few weeks to do it? All right. Um, and so in the same way, uh, we, we, you know, you, you can't miss out prophetic books of the Old Testament just because they're a little difficult. And so the campus pastors all decided that the, the book of the 12, the 12 minor prophets, was important for us. And so I get to preach today on the book of Zephaniah. And I remember when I was told I had to sign up in Ben's place because Ben's away on sabbatical. I looked and some of the other prophets had already gone. The uh, easier prophets had already gone, let's just say. Zephaniah was, was left. And so who, who knows, if you had a real Bible, I'm not saying that a one on your phone's not real. If you had an actual book, who knows where to find Zephaniah? Okay, there was a couple of hands, three hands, four hands. Who's read the book of Zephaniah? Who's ever heard a sermon on the book of Zephaniah? All right. Okay, you have. Because it's interesting, you type in Zephaniah sermon and it's just crickets from Google, and Google has answers to to. Everything, really, other than, other than that. And so by the end of today, next time someone says, have you ever heard someone teach on the book of Zephaniah, 100% of you will be able to put your hands up. And when, we look in, when we're looking at the book of Zephaniah, what we're trying to do is, or what I'm trying to do today is I'm looking for the gospel. I'm looking to see where the gospel is. I'm looking to find good news in the midst of a prophetic book that has a lot to do with destruction and devastation. And so let me begin by making some observations firstly about prophecy. Dave Rhodes last week, how many of you were here last week, would have heard Dave refer to sometimes the prophet seems to see a series of mountain peaks. So if you're seeing prophetically, sometimes you see something, and it's hard to tell whether the thing you see is the first mountain peak, or maybe you're seeing something that's a little behind it, or something that's a little behind that, or something that's a little further behind so you may be seeing things prophetically that might seem to you to be immediate, but you might just be seeing a second or a third or a more successive peak of a mountain that is a lot further removed in time than the time in which you receive the word. And so we always have to approach prophecy with that caution. 
but some of it may be immediately relevant to the people that the prophet lived in the midst of, and some of it may have been relevant to other times in history, a little later in history, the time of Christ, our day even, and even the end times, the end of time itself. One of the things that is significant about prophecy, I would say to you, is this, is that it's always significantly about salvation. The prophets are always somehow, in some way, speaking about salvation. They're always somehow looking forward to the New Testament. They're always somehow looking forward to the time of Jesus. And of course, they don't understand exactly how Jesus is going to be, when he's going to be, what he's going to be. And so they're searching and seeking. And in 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12, it says, of this salvation, so you see that they're, they're thinking about salvation, the prophets inquired and searched carefully, searching what? Or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So you see that when they're seeing and speaking prophetically, they're seeing some of the suffering of Christ that is to come, but they don't understand it fully. They're seeing some of the glories that are to come, but they don't understand it fully. And the Scripture says in that first Peter passage that things were revealed to them by the Holy Spirit for us. Mysteries which it says also that even angels desire to look into. So when you think about it, it's almost as if the angelic host is watching the prophets receiving these words and speaking these words, and they're inquiring, having conversations about them. What do you, what do you think they're talking about? What do you think they're talking about? What do you think they're prophesying? So it tells me that when we come to prophecy, we have to tread carefully. Because if angels aren't, weren't certain, and the prophets themselves weren't certain, then we have to be careful when we speak about the prophetic books. And I think a lot of damage has probably been done in the church through the years of history when we've taken prophetic things and we've said things that are just not really what it was about. So our approach has to be careful. My approach personally is this. It's to build on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Why? Because we ourselves are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In Ephesians 2, verses 19 to 20, it says that we are built like this great house with Christ as the cornerstone on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And so that means that when I look at anything in the Old Testament, I need to understand how the apostles talked about it. I need to see how Jesus talked about it. And I have to be very careful that if I start to go to a place that the apostles didn't speak about and Jesus didn't speak about, that I might be heading in a way that isn't indeed built on the foundation of the apostles. It's a foundation that I'm laying for myself. And so I'm being very careful when I come to Zephaniah because one of the first things I did when I had to look at this book was I had to try and work out, is there anything in this book that's in the New Testament? And there's not a lot. There are themes there might be one quotation, I'm going to come to that a little later, but there's not very much. So how then do you deal with this book? And so that's what we're going to try and do today. Let me make some observations first about Zephaniah. So firstly, it's the fourth book from the end of the Old Testament. So if you want to know where to find it, you start with Matthew. Everyone knows how to find Matthew, right? And you can get to do this now. You may as well open your Bibles on it because we're not going to have very, not very many, if any sermon slides today because we're going to do it old school. Because in the morning when we sing, great is thy faithfulness, we've got to pretend that we're back in church 60 years ago. We've got to open Bibles. How many of you have actual Bibles with you? Okay, well, go ahead and open them at Matthew. Let's do it the easy way. And then you turn back one book. What book's before Matthew? Malachi. And what book's before Malachi? 
Zechariah, and what books before Zechariah? Haggai, and what books before Haggai? Zephaniah, that's how you find it. And those of you who have phones, press on the thing that says <laughs> Zephaniah. Now at the time of the book of Zephaniah, Israel is a divided kingdom. Israel has been a divided kingdom since after the reign of King Solomon. There was some mess that went on. If you want to understand what that mess was, you can look in 1 Kings chapter 11 and 12. That after Solomon, they were mad at Solomon's son and didn't want to follow him anymore. And so they split into two kingdoms. You have a northern kingdom, which is called Israel, which has 10 of the tribes. You have a southern kingdom, which is called Judah, which has two tribes, which are just Benjamin and Judah. And Zephaniah is one of four prophets who speaks to the southern kingdom. The other three prophets, Isaiah, Micah, and Nahum, also focus on the southern kingdom. So if you want to understand how it's all contextualized, what you're reading in Zephaniah, you're also going to find elements of in Isaiah, in, in Micah, and in Nahum. And Zephaniah prophesied during the reign of a king called King Josiah. Who's heard of King Josiah? Who knows anybody called Josiah? You can read about King Josiah in 2 Kings 22 and 2 Kings 23, 2 Chronicles 34 and 35. And he was a good king. The scripture says that he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And he walked in all the ways of his father David. He did not turn to the right hand side or to the left. Josiah put away those who consulted mediums and spiritists, the household gods and idols, all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem that he might perform the words of the law. Now before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, all his soul, all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor after him did any arise like him. So it's in the context of King Josiah that Zephaniah prophesies. But the problem was that the king immediately before Josiah, Manasseh, how many of you know people called Manasseh? There's a reason for that. Manasseh had been terrible. Let me work this thing out. Someone tell me what's causing this. I'm too close to, this is too close to my ear. I can't tell from the signals. They're pointing back there. What does that mean? Use the handheld. I don't know if I know how to preach with a handheld. going old school. <laughs> Handhelds, real Bibles, hymns, <laughs> pews with your name on them. <laughs> Anybody here sit in the same seat every week? I'm talking to you. <laughs> All right. Um, Manasseh. Manasseh was a terrible king. And so it's really because of the things that Manasseh had been doing and the things that he'd led Israel to, do, to Judah to do that had provoked the Lord to act. And so God, God's decided on a course of action so that even though Zephaniah is prophesying, it's not stopping what God's about to do. So you have to contextualize that. Now, interestingly, Zephaniah may have been the last prophet before exile. His prophecy, if you read, and I do encourage you to read it, it's only three chapters and it will take you 20 minutes maybe to read the whole thing after, after today. Just read it and get a sense of what God is saying in there. But it's significantly a prophecy of devastation, and it's against the enemies of Judah. But interestingly, it's against Judah herself. 
and it's also against the city of Jerusalem. And a lot of it is because of their idolatry, their violence, their deceit, their injustice, and their oppression. And so do you have your books, your Bibles open in Zephaniah? Everybody just raise a hand when you do, because we're going to walk through it. And you can highlight, you can underline, you can do what you need to do. Um, but I want you to pay attention to some particular things that I'm going to reference. And I just have three points to make this morning, three, three points. And the first one is this, that Zephaniah encourages us to watch for complacency. Watch for complacency. In chapter 1, verse 12, it says this, And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish those who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. There's a sense in which the people have come to a conclusion that because God isn't acting, that what they're doing is okay. That they can carry on doing whatever they're doing, and God's fine with it just because he hasn't acted, and that God himself won't act. And if you look through the beginning of chapter 1, just count how many times you see the word I. At the beginning of verse 2, I will utterly consume. I will consume, verse 3, I will consume. I will cut off. I will stretch out my hand. I will cut off, verse 4. So many times God himself says that he is going to act to end the complacency. And this is probably a shock to the people because there's a sense of, of settling and a sense that this is fine and a sense that God's okay with me and God's okay with us. But God isn't, even though he hasn't yet done anything. And God is going to act on the day and at the time that he chooses. And one of the other things you'll see when you look through the beginning of Zephaniah, and you can follow this phrase, is a reference to something called the day of the Lord. Who sees the word, the day of of the Lord in verse 7, for example. Do you see the reference to the day of the Lord there? Do you see verse 9 of chapter 1 in the same day? Do you see in verse 14 of chapter 1, the great day of the Lord, chapter 1, verse 15, that day? In the end of chapter 1, verse 18, in the day of the Lord's wrath, what it seems to happen is that there's a day that comes that God says that I'm going to step in and I'm going to act and I'm going to end complacency. And just because that day isn't yet, it doesn't mean that everything is okay. Now, if we want to try and align this with some principles in the New Testament, which I said we must do, are there any things in the New Testament which tell us that complacency is not a good thing? Of course there are. The scripture says in Galatians, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. What does that mean? It means that you can't go on acting in a way that's contrary to God and expect to get away with it perpetually forever for all time. If you sow in a particular way, you will reap what you sow. You sow good things, you reap good things, you sow evil things, and from your flesh, the scripture says that you're going to reap corruption. Hebrews 12 tells us that the God disciplines those he loves. And so to us, we're never meant to be complacent as Christians because I think the thing is that if God's not acting, it's almost proving to us that we're not his children. Because the good parent disciplines their child. The good parent doesn't see the child walking in a way that is wrong and in a way that is destructive to themselves and to others. The good parent at some point steps in and even if it breaks your heart, even if you don't want to come to church and leave your daughter at home because she's late to the car, <laughs> you still do it. And you know she's going to come in and she's going to look at you and when you say good morning, she's going to say what you're saying good morning to me for, Dad. You left me at home. 
but you're doing the same thing that your father did to you and that he did for my sisters to teach me something about timekeeping and that kids don't keep parents waiting and that we don't keep one another waiting because our time is precious. And so if we who are evil, the scripture says, know how to discipline our children, and God's so much better at it. God's saying that at the end of the day, your complacency has to come to an end. And, and when I chastise you, when you find things going on in your life, and you open the eyes of your understanding, and you recognize that it might well be God trying to correct your course, you shouldn't be mad at him. You should rejoice and give thanks and say, thank you, God, for waking me out of my complacency. Thank you, God, for opening my eyes. Thank you, God, for turning the lights on because I was walking in some sort of darkness. But now I see that my way was wrong and my complacency was wrong. And you're leading me in a way and pointing me in a way that is right. So watch for complacency. And interestingly, 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that much of the terrible things that happened to them in the Old Testament were there for our example. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 10 at some point. It says that the way that God dealt with them was for our example, for our instruction, so that we don't behave like they did. So we shouldn't be a Christian generation that looks at folks in the Old Testament who were complacent and were punished and think that God is going to deal with our complacency in any other way. So that's my first point. Watch for complacency. So instead of complacency, then what? I think the second thing that I see in the book of Zephaniah is that we should seek humility. Chapter 2, verse 3, do you see these words? Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness, seek humility, that it may, it may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Isn't this amazing that all this terrible destruction is about to come on Judah? And God says that in the midst of it, if you will just, if you will just humble yourself, if you'll just seek righteousness, if you just turn to me, somehow it may be that it might go well with you. This is an encouragement to do what? It's an encouragement to pray to the Lord. It's an encouragement to return to the Lord. It's an encouragement to seek him, to trust him. It's an encouragement to climb down, to quit, to stop walking the wrong way. It's an encouragement to choose obedience, an encouragement to choose and accept correction. How many of us like to be corrected? There's not a lot of hands go up. How many of us like to be disciplined? How many of us like to be chastised? And so the weird thing is, when we sense that God's trying to get our attention, what do we do? Do we rebel against it? Do we accept it? Do we sit in it? Do we humble ourselves? You think how the New Testament tells us that blessed are the what? The poor in spirit. That sometimes when your experience is that of a poverty in spirit, that's where you're going to find salvation. For the scripture says, the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. God's telling us that being humbled by him, finding ourselves to a place of humility is actually a good thing. And so humility is a better thing than complacency. And in verse chapter 1, verse 7, the words say, be silent in the presence of the Lord. I think that's an encouragement sometimes just to sit and be still and to behold and to pause and to perceive with insight, with understanding what God is doing and to wait in that. 
God, how are you leading me through these circumstances of my life? God, what are you trying to say to me? God, how are you trying to get my attention? God, how are you shaking me out of my complacency? And the scripture in the New Testament tells us that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so you see how these principles in Zephaniah are the entirety of the New Testament. And never forget that there was no New Testament at the time of the New Testament. They wrote the scriptures of the New Testament by meditating on the law of the Lord and on the prophets. And it's out of these things that they preach their sermons. It's out of these things that Jesus understands his calling. It's out of these things that Peter speaks on the day of Pentecost. It's out of these things that Paul writes the book of Galatians. So you see, it's all in there. If we'll just pay attention and look carefully and God opens our eyes to see what is actually there. So firstly, I said, watch out for complacency. I think that's an encouragement for us, and that's a good thing. I think the second thing is seek humility, and I believe that's another good thing for us all. And the third thing is this, and this is really my main point, so I can spend a little bit more time here, that we should align with the work that God is doing. At every time in history, it's important to try and work out what God is up to. And if we work out what God is up to, I think the next thing is to find ourselves in alignment with that. To embrace God's work. To recognize how he's leading us. To recognize what he's working in us. What he's working in our time, in our society, in our day. Chapter 3, uh, verse 12. Everybody there? Just turn over a page or two. These are important words because this is, this is when, I, when I was trying to work out, could I teach on this book, this is where my eyes landed the first time. Because I thought these were astonishing words. And in the midst of devastation and destruction, there is this incredible statement, chapter 3, verses 12 to 13. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness, and speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. In the middle of the book of Zephaniah, God is saying something about the tongue. You find that interesting? A nation that speaks no lies, not a single word that is untruth. A nation that their tongue has no deceit in it. Something about the tongue that I want to spend a little bit of time talking to us about today. Now, is this a work that only God can do? Who can cure their tongue? Anybody? So it's a work that only God can do. And in verse, chapter 3, verse 17 tells us that it's the mighty one who saves. So this is something that God is going to do. Is this a work that God is doing in Zephaniah's time? Yes. Do you think it's a work that God is still doing? Perhaps. Is it a work that God's going to perfect at the end of time? Turn to Revelation 14, chapter 5. Everyone knows where that one is. It's at the end of the Bible. Revelation 14, verse 5. This is the closest exact New Testament reference that you're going to find to the book of Zephaniah. Revelation chapter 14, verse 5, the ones before the Lamb, before the throne of heaven, singing a new song, the ones redeemed from the earth, those who follow their lamb, the Lamb, in their mouth was found no 
deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And so somehow, Zephaniah is seeing a work that God's going to perfect at the end of time. That somehow before the throne of God, there are going to be gathered some in whose, in, in whose mouth is found no deceit. That everything that they speak is perfect. And that perfect speech is an indication, and this is the important thing, of their hearts. Faultless tongues are indicating that the inside is also faultless. And if this is a work that God's doing in Zephaniah's day, if it's a work that God's continuing to do, if it's a work that God's going to do at the end of time, if that's the sweep, if that's the move of the Holy Spirit, would it be a good idea for us to try and perceive that work and to align with it? So God's saying something to us today in 2022, maybe even about our own tongues, about our own speech. And I really do encourage you to read the book of James because James, I wonder whether James had been meditating even on some of these scriptures. Because in the book of James, in James 1, chapter 20, verse, verse 26, it says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. His religion is useless. And that's interesting, isn't it? Because James is almost saying like the doctor that comes to you and says, how are you doing? And you say, I'm okay. And he says, just show me your tongue. And he looks at your tongue, and your tongue's in a terrible state. And he knows more about how your tongue looks than what you said about how you actually are. And I don't know whether doctors still do this or not. But the interesting thing is that in Scripture, I think Jesus is saying to us, if I want to understand how I am, take a look in the mirror at your tongue. If you want to understand how other people are, listen to what they say. Pay less attention to how they act. Listen to what comes out of their mouths. And James says, basically this, if, if I think I'm religious, if I think I'm good, if I think I'm perfect, if I think I've got it all together, but my tongue is terrible, I'm a liar. And James 3, 2 says this, we stumble in many things, but if anyone doesn't stumble in word, he is a perfect man able to also bridle the whole body. Isn't that incredible? That God is somehow saying that if we can get a control of this, then we can get a control of all of this. A work that God is speaking of through Zephaniah, a work that God's going to do at the end of time, which is, it feels as if this is the movement of his Holy Spirit, and he's saying, perceive the work I'm doing, wake up to it, open your eyes to it, and line up with it. Because James describes the tongue in this way. He says it's like the bit in the horse's mouth. And what does the bit in the horse's mouth do? If you have the bit in the horse's mouth and you pull the bit, you can turn the whole horse. It's like a little rudder that can steer a whole ship. So you can have the biggest ship on the sea, but the rudder, the little thing, is what steers the ship. James says the tongue is like a tiny fire. It's like a little spark that sets light to the whole forest. So it's telling us that this little thing that we pay no attention to might be more important than we think. But I don't want to spend the whole morning talking to you about the worst that the tongue can do. Because I feel as if we could spend forever doing that, right? So this isn't about speech that is coarse or foul or excessive. This isn't about gossip. It's not about negative speech. It's not about critical speech. It's not about untrue speech or speech that is hateful or dissembling or divisive or destructive. It's not about not being able to control your mouth so you just talk the whole time and have no ability to stop. If you think your tongue needs healing, then I'm going to recommend, write this down, there's a sermon, 
Type it in in YouTube. It's a 10-part series called Does Your Tongue Need Healing? By a gentleman called Derek Prince. And his own experience is what led him to preach this series because he said that he was a foul-mouthed, terribly spoken man in the army. I think maybe that's what it was because he was in North Africa during the Second World War. And when God got hold of him, the first thing that God did was cleaned up the way he spoke and his language changed. Interestingly, I think it also happened in the middle of the Welsh revival when God showed up. It so happened that when people started pouring into the churches and the, and, and, and the, and the, um, the gatherings went on for days and days, the, the legend or the story I've read is that, is that when the miners went back to the pits, the ponies didn't listen to them anymore because their speech had changed. They didn't swear and curse as much. And so the ponies weren't used to being spoken to nicely. <laughs> Whatever they were doing beforehand... They only listened to that, and so God had cleansed their tongues somehow. And Derek Prince says that his journey was one of successively through Scripture, God leading him Scripture after Scripture to understanding how his speech shouldn't be gossip, how his speech shouldn't be negative, how his speech shouldn't be idle, because the Scripture says that we will be judged at the end of the day for what? Every idle word that we speak. He said the Lord led him through a process where he showed him that his exaggeration needed to stop. The scripture says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Everything else is of the evil one. And so when we find ourselves in conversations with one another, and I'm trying to persuade you of something, and I've got to appeal to fanciful stories that aren't true, this is exaggeration. When I've got to boast about myself to put someone else down, that's wrong. And he said that the Lord led him through this process. Not only did he cure the, the foul things coming out of his mouth, but he began to recognize that idle speech. When we're in situations and we're just talking, we don't even know why we're doing it. Scripture says there's a multitude of words, sin is not lacking. It's telling us that when we just keep going on, somehow in that, sin enters. Boasting is another thing he said that the Lord led him to cure in his speech. That we say that I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. James says, no, 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 we've got to say if the Lord wills because we don't hold tomorrow. We don't know what comes tomorrow, but when you examine how we speak in this day and age... It's interesting because we act as if people who've got the control of our futures and we know what's coming tomorrow, we know what's coming the day after. And I'm not even just talking about our tongues because how do we speak mostly today? What do we do when we want to say something? We write it. We text it. We tweet it. We put it on social media. And so I think God's telling us not only are our tongues an issue, but the things that we tweet and we type and we text, and we put out there our problems also. But the good news is this, that he's telling us that there's this thing that if you can get control of this, you can get control of the whole thing. Is that magic? You're telling me that if you're struggling with some other aspect of lacking self-control, that if you can spend time working on your tongue, that you might fix all of it. Is that what James is saying? Anyone who's able to, be, to control his words can control the whole body. See, I don't think that self-control is divisible. You can't, you can't divide it up. I can't have self-control in respect of this and none here. I can't say that I'm perfect here and have a lack of control there. I think it comes all in one thing. I think that if I, if I can control a little bit about what I'm eating, if I'm probably going to be exercising a little bit. I'm going to control my speech a little bit. I'm going to control when I go to bed. I'm going to control my work habits. I'm going to control uh, my, my relationships. I'm going to control what I look at, what I watch. 
that this gift of the Spirit of God is the thing called self-control. And James is saying, Zephaniah is prophesying, God's doing this work. Start with your tongue. Start with the tongue. And so that's my encouragement for you from the book of Zephaniah. Control of the tongue is like exercising the self-control muscle. I've been trying this. It's really hard. I don't preach anything to you that I've not lived and try to live. I guarantee you this. The second you start trying to control your tongue, you'll realize that you've got to begin to do this continual internal work of saying, shouldn't say that. Shouldn't say it this way. Shouldn't say it yet. Should say it differently. Shouldn't type it. Shouldn't tweet it. Every time my itchy finger runs from my phone, I shouldn't. I should wait. I should pause. I should think. I should let it settle. I should wait, pause, sit, let it settle, and maybe never say it. I think it's a problem with our entire generation. We're rash and hasty in our speech. And I think that tells us everything we need to know about the hearts of our generation, doesn't it? Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I wonder what would happen if we gossiped less, there was less idle speech, less exaggeration, less boasting, less pointless texting, tweeting, that we might find what our mouths were actually meant for. I was imagining Jesus in the wilderness, and he's been there for 40 odd days, and he hasn't eaten anything. And he's tempted. And out of his mouth could have come, oh, man, I'm, I'm done with this. This sucks. <laughs> what am I doing in the wilderness? What's the point of any of this, right? This is not going to work out. <laughs> I'm starving. And there's a stone. And I'm the son of God. And I can do magic. I can turn this stone to bread. And so, but does he say that? But that's what's welling up in his head. Because that's the nature of the temptation that Satan is tempting him with. And you realize that the work of self-control and controlling his tongue that Jesus does is he doesn't speak rashly. He doesn't speak hastily. He doesn't boast in himself. I am the son of God. He doesn't argue with Satan about it. He simply speaks faith. It is written, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that, word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so I'm wondering whether instead of confessing unbelief, we might begin to speak words of faith. And you realize that when we're working on that every day, all the time, in every situation, in every conversation, in every interaction, controlling the tongue, that we're exercising this self-control muscle that's going to pay off in other areas of our life. And Zephaniah is telling us this, and this is the work that God's doing through the end of time, because it's right there in the book of Revelation. God's perfected it by the time we get there. And we stand before the throne without fault in our mouth and without fault in our hearts. So why don't we start walking this way today? That's my encouragement for you. Just work on your tongue. I'm not saying forget the other things. I'm struggling with this or that, and I, God, I've been trying to give this up or stop doing that for years or this, or I wish this would change. I wish that would change. Work on your tongue. 
Because if you can control the words and control the tongue, the scriptures promises that the whole body comes under control. And then we'll find ourselves speaking more faith, less unbelief, more words of encouragement, rather than whatever was in my head the first time I thought about saying something. More words that are edifying, more words that are kind, more truth, more words that genuinely help one another, more blessing, words filled with hope, words filled with life, words filled with love. And this is the good thing, praise. I think our tongues were meant to praise God. When we wonder what's going on in the heavenlies, they're not having theological debates with God about there's this interesting passage in Scripture that I don't understand. Can you tell me what it's about? When you see into the heavens, what are they doing the whole time? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Holy is the Lord. Blessed is the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Glory to the Lamb sitting on a throne. They're doing that with their tongues. Out of their tongues are coming good things that have been purified because that's what's welling up within them. That's what's in their hearts. And if you think that that being in the presence of God is anything other than that, then you have to go read Isaiah's experience in Isaiah 6. Because Isaiah comes into the presence of God, and he sees into the heavenly realm, and what's the first thing he realizes is, uh-oh, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a generation of unclean lips. And an angel flies and grabs a coal and touches it to his lips and heals his mouth, which is telling us that this is only a work that God can do. Do you think this is helpful to you? Because when I read Zephaniah, I thought, I want to say something that's helpful to them, but to me also. That if this is an issue for me, then being complacent, let me forget the complacency. Let me humble myself. But if there's one thing that I can walk away from this book with, what is it? Work on your tongue. Work on your tongue. I'm not saying that's the whole of the book of Zephaniah. I wouldn't pretend that this is a perfect exegesis of the book. It's far from that. But as I said, I get very afraid in the prophetic books. And I got to line it up with the apostles and the New Testament. And James, which I encourage you to read, says, control the tongue, control the whole body.